to Romans chapter 14. We'll start there, and then we're going to move around a little bit today. Uh, hey, John, when you get uh, the count finished up, would you bring me up a cup of water back here? Jimmy had to work today. Bittersweet. Which is what? Bittersweet. Which is bittersweet? Work is the it's like the water. Uh-oh. But anyway, we're in Romans chapter 14. We've now had two messages on what I have told you is probably the greatest single doctrine teaching that you're ever going to get into the Bible, probably will impact your life more than anything else that we ever study or do. And that is the great teaching and the doctrine on the judgment seat of Christ. We've been coming through Romans chapter 14 as we're uh, coming to the end of the book of Romans. And we've seen in Romans chapter 14 how that, uh, in this particular chapter, uh, we're talking about uh, how to get along with each other as Christians. Chapter 14 and 15 are probably the two key chapters for you and for me as far as uh, how we're to deal with each other. And, you know, Christianity is like, a, is like a family. And, you know, in every family you have issues, you have problems. No brothers and sisters get along all the time. and Moms or dads. And uh, thank you, Phil. And it's a thing where, um, you know, it, from time to time, uh, you know, you have issues. And Romans chapter 14 or 15 shows you how to deal with those issues and lays it all out. And the whole chapter, and 15 too, is built around a concept that I've tried to tell you is the concept that if you're saved this morning, you ought to keep before you every day of your life, 24-7. And that is the great concept over there in 14.10 that says we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We've learned a lot of things about that in the last two lessons. And uh, I told you that you've hardly hear any messages at all today on the judgment seat of Christ. And uh, you now know how to identify it in the Bible. We've identified it as the day of Jesus Christ or the day of Christ. We now understand from 1 Corinthians chapter 3 how it works. That was the first definitive passage that we looked at. And in that passage, the first week, we looked at all the issues and the components and saw the whole thing, how it kind of, how it works and uh, all the inside pieces that you need to know. Then last week, we looked at our second definitive passage, and that was in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and uh, that was our great reality lesson. The reality why the Bible calls the judgment seat of Christ for you and for me, the terror of the Lord. We looked at it last time as, the, as probably the uh, closest time that a saved man or a saved woman is ever going to get to going to hell. A time when the fire that judges everything that we do, the motive behind it, will come and take away uh, everything that we've had. We have come so far astray in Bible Christianity today that it's, it's most of God's people are doing the things they do for the Lord with a wrong motive. They don't even understand the fundamental issues of, of, of the attitude of heart of how we do what we do. I talked to you last week about how that the fire off the brazen altar, and I laid that out for you, and I showed you how that if everything that you and I do, everything that we do for the Lord needs to go back with the attitude of what Christ did for you on the cross. And how many of us in our daily journey and our relationship with God have forgotten or never really learned the price that Christ paid. You know, you can you have Christians, you can have you have Christians in any church. 
And we don't have a lot of them here, uh, by the grace of God, but you find Christians all across this country in every church that really do nothing for God. And uh, they're going to live their whole lives doing what they want to do and, uh, and never really ever find out what God wants them to do. And when you look at that, you know, there's all kinds of explanations why a person, uh, a saved person would be that way and have that attitude. But the single truth of why you and I as a child of God get lackadaisical in what we do for him or do nothing for him or never come to the place that we ever really find out what God wants us to do and then take all of our energy and focus it comes down to one simple concept. And that is, we are sitting here today and we do not, as saved men and women, sitting here today, we do not understand the price that he paid for you to be here this morning and on your way to heaven. The reason why you don't appreciate your Bible and don't read it and don't study it is because you do not understand the price that was paid for you to have it. You don't understand the price that your forefathers paid with their own lives for you to be able to hold that Bible. And we're in a, we're in a peculiar situation in our church age. We're at the end. We're at the Laodicean church period where we are a church that has forgotten for the most part everything that God is and what he has done for us. And... Uh, That's why it's important for us to take this time and to do what I call a 2010 rendition of the Judgment Seat of Christ. Every year, uh, I try to put it in some way, some shape, some form, as I do every Thursday night and everything that we do. But today, I want to to finish our study uh, in the last part of this great uh, concept, the Judgment Seat of Christ. The Bible says, the last shall be first, and the first shall be last. Now, I know in the doctrinal content of the Gospels when he's using that, he's talking about the nation of Israel. I understand that. But also in the inspirational application, that is a picture of what the judgment seat of Christ is really going to be. Most of us who think, uh, very frankly, most of us who think we're doing what we're doing with the right motive, probably are not. And it's going to be the one out there that, that struggles and really, and re, but just stays with the stuff and keeps doing what God wants them to do, the best that they know how. We get so inflated with what we know and all of the, and all of the things about the Bible that it, it, it messes up our attitude of heart. And that is the number one thing we all have to guard and take care of. And uh, I want to talk to you today about a passage in Scripture that God showed me many years ago. I probably preached this message in my lifetime of 35 plus years of preaching the ministry probably over 200 times. In reality, it's really what drives me in the ministry to do it the way I do it. Now, I want you to take your Bibles and turn over to Job chapter 26. Now, I talked to you a while back about throwback messages. And I told you that in the month of, as soon as we finish Romans... Uh, we're going to take about maybe four or six weeks, and we're going to, uh, between starting the book of Second Corinthians, which is really the handbook of ministry, which is what we're going to get into next, where we can really learn to fine-tune the aspects of ministry. I told you I was going to take four or six weeks, and we were going to go back, and we were going to preach messages like they were preached 30 or 40 years ago. Messages where you just laid it out the way that it was. Unfortunately, or fortunately, however you look at it, this is one of those messages today. I don't preach messages that, that haven't impacted me myself some way. 
If most pastors, and some of you know this to be true, most pastors, uh, you can get on the internet and you can find a sermon already laid out for you that you can get up in front of your people and they'll just say, wow, wow, wow. And you could get on the internet just to find about anything you want as far as a sermon already laid out for you, a study already laid out for you, and I've got many of those guys just get on there and copy those things out, go over it a few times, and that's exactly what they do. Personally, I, I, I can't preach something that has an impact in my life. I, I think that everything has to start with me. I believe, and you've heard me say this many, many times, everything, and I mean everything, rises and falls on leadership. This church won't be any, just like in your marriage, your wife and your family will be a mirrored image of your spiritual relationship with God in a church. The church's spirituality and where they're at and what they're doing will be a mirrored image of the pastor and his leadership and what he does or what he doesn't do or what he preaches and what he doesn't preach. And uh, uh, my experience in learning the Bible has uh, been a good one. I, I believe things about the Bible that a lot of people don't believe today. They once believed it, but they don't believe it anymore. I believe the Bible is the Word of God from cover to cover. I believe that everything in that book was handpicked by God. One time I read in John chapter 21, verse 25, and it was a verse that really changed my life. I toured the Bible anyhow. I read back there where the Bible says something like this, and I'm going to paraphrase it now, and it says, And many other things that Jesus do... That if they were all written in a book, the world itself could not contain all of the things that he did. You know, when I read that verse, <clears throat> it just kind of took me back for about, uh, about a week. I, I, that was a verse that just hit me like a freight train. And I had to step back and, and, and I already believed the Bible. I already knew it was God's word. But when I saw that, it, it, it refocused everything about me because at that point in time, I realized a great truth. If that is true, and I'm not doubting it at all, if that is true, then many other things that he say and do, that if they were all written in a book that the world itself couldn't contain it all, then you know what that tells me? That tells me that he handpicked everything that he wanted me to have and put it in that book. That means there's no accidents in the Bible, doesn't it? I believe the order of the books in the Bible are there for a reason. And the reason I believe that is because if you are a Jew and you have an Old Testament uh, a Bible, uh, your order of your books in the Old Testament and the Jewish Bible are different than mine. Do you know why? Because the Jewish books in the Bible, the order, show them the second coming of Christ, the day of the Lord. And your order of your books in the Bible show you, show you a greatest doctrine in the Bible that everybody has messed up on. But who pays attention to that? Nobody. You see, I believe it's a living book. I believe that the Bible says in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, For this cause also thank we God without ceasing. For when you receive the word of God, you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. You know why the word of God don't work in many God's people's lives? Because they don't believe it. The key there was effectually work also in them that believe. So my approach to the Bible is different than most people. I've studied over the years some really interesting things that, that really ignited my fire in the Bible and, and then some things that really bothered me in the Bible. I, 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 I had the advantage, and you've heard me say this many, many times, and I'm not going to belabor the point today. God had his hand in my life when I got saved to put the right man in my life that steered my course in life to that book. 
And my job, as I see it, is to do the same thing for anybody who wants to find the truth of the Word of God. When I started coming through the Bible many years ago, there were some things that just absolutely intrigued me. And then as I began to get a little deeper in it, and I began to understand some of these things about how it was hand-picked, and I realized that everything in there had a purpose to me, then some things began to bother me. And I'll tell you what began to bother me in the Bible. The first thing I began to see is, it, when, when I don't even remember where this happened. The first thing I saw one time, and it just kind of clicked. I don't even remember when. It's been years ago. But I was reading in the book of Job, and I saw in Job chapter 9, verses 2 and 3. Did you ever, ever read that? You don't, you don't have to turn to it. I'll read it to you. It says this, I know it is of a truth, but how should man be just with God if he will contend with him? He cannot answer him one in a thousand. You know what that verse says? That verse says that man can't answer one question that God asked one out of a thousand. Now, I don't know if you know the context of that passage is. The context of that passage is the great white throne judgment. You realize that the great white throne judgment, when every unsaved man and unsaved woman goes before God to be judged that day, you know that's a day that you're going to get your chance to prove God wrong and you were right? I mean, uh, Roman, uh, 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 Romans chapter 3 verse 4 uh, says, uh, just, you'll be justified in thy sayings uh, uh, to overcome when thou art judged. And it, what he's saying is there that somebody's going to stand before God and they're going to try to make God out the bad person and them the right person. Of course, it's not going to work at the great white throne judgment, but you're going to get your chance. You know, most people have a funny idea in America. They think that when you get to the great white throne judgment, that final judgment where unsaved people are judged, they think there's a big set of scales there, and God puts all your good works in this one and all your bad works in this one, and if your good works outweigh your bad, you go to heaven, and if your out, bad ones outweigh your good one, you go to hell. That's not the case. You know what he's going to do? He's going to put you in this hand and Jesus Christ in this hand, and he's going to weigh you out. He's going to put the most perfect, righteous man that ever lived on planet Earth in this hand, and he's going to put you and me as a guilty sinner in this hand, and he's going to read your meter. And the Bible says that we're going to be found wanting in the scales. God is going to ask an unsaved man some questions, and that unsaved man is not going to have any answers. Then I read over in Job chapter 38, verse 3. I got another one, and this was started to get me going on it. He says in that passage, Gird up thy loins like a man, for I will demand of thee and answer thou me. You know what he's saying? God demanding somebody to answer him. Now, when I saw that, that the questions in the Bible, when I saw the questions in the Bible meant something, and I began to realize that God asked questions, and he wanted answers, as I began to study them, I found a great study throughout the Bible. I learned that if God asks the question in the Bible, he does it for a reason. Because he just doesn't do things in the Bible for the sake of filling up space. He does everything in that Bible because it's his book by his design. Everything he does is there for a reason. And every question in there, somebody's going to have to answer. And as I started to come down through that, I, 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 got, I got overwhelmed. Do you ever see the first question in the Bible? That's the first place I went once I started to get this concept because I understand the law of first mention. And so I, I went back and the law of first mention is the first time you find something in the Bible, it's usually very important. 
So when I got scratching my head, I said, I wonder what the first question in the Bible was. I thought the first question in the Bible surely would have been asked by God. I mean, you'd think that, wouldn't you? And when I was flipping that through there and got my concordance and, and was looking up that thing and trying to find the first question, the first question mark in the Bible, I thought sure that the first question asked in the Bible would have been asked by God. You know, that's not true. The first question asked in the Bible wasn't asked by God. The first question asked in the Bible is found in Genesis chapter 3 verse 1 and it's asked by the devil. You know what the first question is in the Bible? And when I saw this, I was off, man. When I saw this, I, I started a quest for questions in the Bible. Worst thing I ever did. <laughs> when I got to this point, when I saw that the first question in the Bible was asked by the devil, and then I saw what he asked, you know what he asked? He says, yea, hath God said? The first question in the Bible was simply, does God know what he's talking about? He asked that to Adam. You realize that's the first question you've got to deal with before you can be saved? If you don't believe the Bible's the absolute infallible word of God, now I know we live in a weak-style Christianity today where everybody believes everything and you think you can get saved just because your dog died or your cat died or you got a nice warm feeling inside and you got emotional stirring. But let me just drop an A-bomb on you. You cannot be saved. You cannot be saved if you do not believe that Bible is the word of God because that's the book that saves you. If you look at that Bible like it's just any other book or man wrote it or it's got mistakes in it or you don't buy all of it and there's some good stuff in it but you ain't figured it out and you don't buy the whole thing is perfect, inerrant, I got a headline for you, pal. You ain't saved. Why, the first question asked, the devil asks is the first thing he'll do to keep you from getting saved and that is sowing doubt in your mind that that book's the Word of God. Well, once I saw that, once I saw that, I had to see, move this thing on. And I found the second question in the Bible in the same chapter, Genesis chapter 3, verse 9. Now, the second question, God asks. And the second question in the Bible, Genesis chapter 3, verse 9, is God calling out to a man in a fallen race who has been deceived by the devil, and he calls out. And the second question in the Bible is simply this, Adam, where art thou? That's a question. Now, that may not mean much to you. But for me, who wanted to be a Bible student, and still am, I saw immediately that that is the whole gist of the history of man and the history of the Bible, isn't it? All the history of man and all the history of human race and all the history of every nation, every king, and every individual that ever left, lived on this planet is built around those two questions. One, did God mean what he said? And two, where are you this morning? Now, you know that God, when he asked that question, he knew right where he was. You see, Adam and Eve had come to the place where they had fallen now. When the devil came and gave them the, the hype, did God really mean what he said, and then changed what God said, like your new Bibles do, then, then she fell for it, like some of you have. And then she got confused, and she couldn't tell, and the devil used that confusion because God is not the author of confusion And then so when God comes to them, what did they do? They hid from God. 
They cut down some fig leaves and they cover themselves up and they're hiding in the garden. And when God's coming down there to have Bible study with them, like on Thursday night, he comes down there and he, he says he doesn't see them. Usually they were there with their Bible in their hand, with their notebook and their red pen and their yellow pen and their pigment pen and all the other thing. But now they're not there. And he looks over and the Bible's over in the corner. The pens are scattered everywhere. The notebook is flipping out in the wind. And God comes down and walks through that garden and he, he cries out, Adam, Adam, where art thou? Now, if you're just a common, ordinary person, you'd think that God lost them. Come out, come out, wherever you are. God knew exactly where they were. He knew what bush they were under. He knew exactly where they were hiding. You see, somebody said, well, why, if God knew where they were, why did God ask where they were? The same reason that God knows where you're at this morning, but through my preaching, he'll ask you where you're at because God knew where they were at. He wanted to see if Adam would be honest enough to say where he was at. First two questions in the Bible set up the whole thing for the human race. Well, once I saw that, look out, I'm going, man. I'm in this thing. You know, I had a guy tell me one time that he was on a search for God. And he said, I'm going to go search for God. He said, I'm going I'm to do an investigation and I'm going to investigate God. I, I didn't say anything to him at the time because it wouldn't do any good. But I thought to myself, isn't that the stupidest thing you ever heard? You see, you don't find God through investigation. You find God through revelation. God reveals himself to you. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, he's the true light that lighted every man that come into the world. Somebody says, I'm going, to, I'm going to search out God. I'm going to investigate God. Bible says there's none that seeketh after God. There's none that understandeth. If we were left to ourselves to find God, we'd never find him. I mean, you can, I don't know how you investigate God. I guess you get all the episodes of CIS and NCIS or ACBC and, 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 and all these things and find out some good investigating skills and then, you know, and then uh, go to the crime scene. That'd be back in the garden and then try to trace God through. I guess, I don't know. It's always hard for me to understand how somebody says, God, I'm going to do this with God. When God's already told you in the Word, that ain't going to work. You don't find God through investigation. You find God through revelation. He reveals himself to you. And very frankly, I know a little bit about human nature being human myself. Man talks like that. He's already been contacted by God and doesn't want the contact. He wants to forget God and move on and find his own place somewhere. That's the way it works. Well, once I got started, it was incredible. This idea of questions in the Bible. Once I started laying it out and paying attention to it, you know what I found? I found questions God's going to ask an unsaved man at the great white throne judgment by every vocation according to his profession. You know, Romans chapter 1 verses 19, 20 says God used himself as the pattern for everything he's made. So God's in everything. So whether you know it or not, everything you do in life, you're facing every day 24-7 some pattern that God put in there to reveal himself to you. When I started coming through the Bible, I started finding questions God's going to ask a philosopher. You'll find that in Colossians and Ecclesiastes. 
I found questions God's going to ask a psychiatrist. You'll find those in a therapist. You'll find those in, in the book of Proverbs. I found questions God's going to ask astronomers. Psalms chapter 19, book of Job. Book of Job, the oldest book in the Bible. I found questions that God's going to ask nurses. God's going to ask doctors. God's going to ask physicists. God's going to ask firemen. God's going to ask scientists and evolutionists. I found questions God's going to ask a judge, a lawyer, a mathematician, a police officer, a weatherman, uh, electricians, a school teachers, emergency uh, technician people that ride in the ambulances and all those things. I mean, whether you know it or not, everything you do is some form of a manifestation in your daily work of what God does. You know by national statistics... You know who the three biggest alcoholic problems are in this country? Have been for 40 years. The most number three, top three drunks, alcoholics in this country are three professions that are like God-like professions. In other words, they, they make decisions on an everyday basis that affects people's life and the people's uh, fate in life. And, and they're faced every day with life-changing decisions that impact somebody's whole life, just like God is. And when they're unsaved, and they try to do it as unsaved man, it drives them to drink. And who they are? Well, the first one is judges. The biggest alcoholics in the United States, according to the United States survey, is judges. You know why? Because they sit in judgment and every day of their life, as they sit in that courtroom, they make decisions in people's lives. They either give mercy or not, or they give judgment on this. Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad, sometimes it's bribed, sometimes it's honest. But the bottom line is they sit in a seat just like God's going to sit when he judges everybody. You know why over in England the judges in courts in the parliament wear white wigs? I've told you this before. They wear, if you see it over there, they don't, they're not all wear, dye their hair white. They wear white powdered wigs. They've done that since the 12th century. You know why they do that? Because somebody read in Revelation chapter 19 that Jesus Christ's head was like wool. And he's a righteous judge. So they wear that wool wig so that they will remember to make righteous judgments. Then you say, how could you fix the judicial system in this country? By about 60,000 wigs. You know who the second one is? Psychiatrist. How many remember Marshall Safer? Anybody? You do. He was a psychologist, was on radio for years and years and years. And he hated Christians. And people could call in and he would, he would mock Christianity. He would mock the Bible. He had a following in Kansas City that was unbelievable. And his advice to people was the most godless, perverted stuff you've ever found yourself. Marshall Safer wound up blowing his brains out. You know why? Because it didn't even work for him. I mean, imagine being in a situation where you're telling people are coming to you with problems and issues in their life, and you're telling them something that may alter their life. Let me tell you something. When you deal in somebody's life with the Bible, you better be well understanding that what you have and what you're doing better be based on truth instead of your opinion. You know what the third one is? Doctors. We've all heard of the God syndrome. Doctors make life and death decisions every day. 
you have to pull the plug on a loved one because they're on a respirator and they're keeping them alive. Many doc- I mean, there are some compassionate doctors. I mean, there really is. I mean, I'm not saying all doctors, but I'm saying all doctors who don't recognize their relationship to God in the whole concept. I've been in situations where parents, people had to, people had to pull the plug and they had a very hard time with it. And the doctor got irritable because they would say, don't you understand? They're dead. That's just pumping them out. Pull the plug. I got to get to my golf game. See? Imagine having that kind of power. I mean, the only way you can get around that is when he's in a ventilator, go there and hold the plug up and say, hey, look. That ain't right either. God's witnesses in everything that we do. That's why the Bible says in Psalm 14, 1, the fool has said in his heart that there is no God. You know what? If you're an atheist this morning or you're somebody who claimed to know an atheist, let me tell you something. You were not born an atheist. And you as a growing up a little child, I never saw three, four-year-old kids, six or seven, eight kids who was an atheist. You know what you got to do to become an atheist? You got to get educated out of God. You got to go someplace where somebody teaches you that there is no God. Because your heart tells you that there is no God when God's touching you all the time. I found questions in Job chapter 31 verse 14 that God's going to ask the nation of Israel at the second coming of Christ. Wow, they're rough ones. I found the questions, I bet you there isn't five Christians in this city today. I found the questions that God asked the devil when he was on the cross. What do you think of that? You think that, you think that when Jesus was crucified, it was, it was just a bunch of uh, mad uh, scribes and Pharisees and the Jewish rulers whipping and beating and killing and, and uh, a poor dumb prophet named Jesus? Why, my friend, I got some news for you. There was a battle going on between two beings in that. And don't get caught up in the crucifixion without going back in the Old Testament and seeing what's going on in the crucifixion. There was two beings that were coming face to face at that point, And your souls hung in the balance. The thing that bothered me about questions is that in each case, God wanted an answer. The book of Acts is supposed to be a hard book. You know, the easiest way to understand the book of Acts is the book of Acts is built around just three questions. One question in Acts chapter 2, verse 38. One question in Acts chapter 9, verse 6. And one question in Acts chapter 16, verse 30. And the whole book of Acts just falls in place like it's carved brisket around those three verses and lays itself out around those three verses. Questions, man. I mean, once I saw it, it just got me. It got me. And then I came to Job chapter 26. And boy, that was the bad day in my life. Job chapter 26, verse 1 through 4. You can go ahead and turn to this one. And you know what I found in Job chapter 26? I found six questions. Six questions that God asked somebody. Now, historically, I know he's asking Job this in this chapter. I understand that. But inspirationally, there's something else going on here. Now, we talked about this a couple Thursday nights ago. 
uh, when somebody asked a question about the number six in numerology, we now know that six is the number of man. I mean, man's created on the sixth day. Man was told to work six days. The giants had six fingers and six toes. Uh, man's on the earth 6,000 years before the Lord comes back. Revelation chapter 7 and 18 says 666 is the mark of a man, of the number of a man. It clearly tells you that. So here we are in Job chapter 26, and there's six things. That's 66. There's something going on here. Now, when I read down through here, and I got to tell you this, and this is where I'm just going to be honest with you. What I'm about to say, I'm sure I preach this message many, many times. And more than once, somebody's come up afterwards and looked me in the eye and said, you know what, Bob? I think you're stretching that. I looked them right back and I'd say, amen, brother. I hope you're right. If you think I want to be, now I try to be very exact and on the button with everything I preach. I, I pride myself on the hours that I spend putting that book together so when I come up here, we're not singing Kumbaya. Though that's a nice song right up next to Pine Tree. But this is one message that I just assume be dead wrong on. I hope when I get to the judgment seat of Christ, the Lord says, Bob, you were dead wrong on that one. You had everything else really good. How'd you get screwed up on that one? Come on, we're having a party in here. I hope that's the way it is. I hope that's the way it is. So at the end of this message, if you say in your heart and your mind, I think Bob was way off on this one, you can already know I'm with you. I hope you're right. I hope you're right. I really do. Now let me say this. As I read down through here, and I saw these questions compared to all the other questions, I came to this stark reality. The only people who could answer these questions were saved people and women from the church age. These types of questions and the style of questioning and their doctrinal significance can only fall into the church age and it can only point to you and me. And I got a terrible sick feeling that these six questions are going to show up at the judgment seat of Christ because the only ones who can answer them are us. And I understand, I'm telling you, but let me just say this to you. And listen to me. If God has a set of questions for everybody else in that book, brother, you better know he's got a set for you and me. Now let's read this passage and let's just lay it out and then all go commit suicide. But this is going to be rough. But it's just, I mean, you only got to hear it once. I've had to preach it 200 times. Six questions that I believe will answer, will be asked. We won't probably answer them at the judgment seat of Christ. All right, look at Job chapter 26. Watch how unique this is. And then we're going to explain it. But Job answered and said, How hast thou helped him that is without power? How savest thou the arm that hath no strength? How hast thou counseled him who hath no wisdom? And how hast thou plentifully declared the thing as it is? To whom hast thou uttered words? And whose spirit came from thee? Now, Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. We ask you now to take this time and to open our hearts and let us, at this last time, when we look at the judgment seat of Christ today, let you burn into our hearts the great truths that everybody in here will be, to be forewarned is forearmed and understand the day that's coming in all of our lives if we're saved. If there's somebody here this morning, Lord, that does not know the Lord Jesus Christ as their own personal Savior, then my prayer for them is that they get saved today. But help us, Lord, in all that we do. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. For sake we ask it. Amen.
All right, it says, but Job answered and said. Now, Job is talking about this, but we also know that, that God speaks through the Holy Spirit of God to Job. And we know that when God, Job asked a question, it's like anybody else asked a question, it's God asking a question. It wasn't just historically Job, and we can move on from there. There's a reason behind what God does. There's a reason behind what God does. Now, I want you to look at the first one. The first one here is, how hast thou helped him that without power? Now, ladies and gentlemen, from our way of thinking, that'd be an unsaved person. You realize that an unsaved person has no power in his life whatsoever? He just thinks he does. Now, you know, if you ever want a good message to preach down at the mission, that uh, I always keep about 30 of these in my Bible someplace in case I ever get in a spot where I have to have something. But you want to ever have a good message that fits right into the mission? I mean, uh, that fits right down with there? Uh, it's really anywhere. But if you ever get in a pinch and you want to preach to unsaved people, you can preach a basic four-point outline that fits right around this thing because an unsaved man is four things. You know what those four things are? The first thing he is, is he's without God, so you can preach that. The second thing an unsaved man is, he's without hope. You can preach that. The, 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 the fourth point you can preach is that he's without excuse because he is. And the third point is you can preach that he's without power. But he is. Bible says in Romans chapter 5, verse 6, For when we were yet without strength, Christ died for the ungodly. See that thing? Now, an unsaved man has no power in his life whatsoever. He has no power over sin. He has no power over the things in life. You ought to see sometime what the wisest man that ever lived said back in the book of Ecclesiastes about unsaved people. You know what he said? He said they're just like beasts over there in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. He says one befalleth one befalleth the other. Are you an unsaved person here this morning and an unsaved person out there in life? You got no control over everything. You just think you do. How many times has somebody started drinking uh, and said, well, I know when to quit, and then you wind up an alcoholic. You know why that is? Because you have no control over anything. Somebody says, well, I, are you smoking again? Well, yeah, but I, uh, I'm just doing it temporarily. I, I can stop whenever I want. Really? 20 years later, you're still doing it. And you know what your answer is then? Well, I can stop if I want to. Really? Try for 24 hours. Let's see who's really in control of your life. I mean, you have no power. An unsaved man or woman has absolutely no power. Drugs, alcohol, gambling, pornography, whatever it is, you have no power on your own to stop those things. Now, I think that, I think that Alcoholics Anonymous, and there's another group called Narcotics Anonymous, I think they're good organizations. And I'm not knocking them by any way, shape, or form. I've had people that were in drugs, and I've had people that were on alcohol that have actually uh, used Alcoholics Anonymous uh, to do it. I went through both of their programs, and I've never had an alcohol problem or a drug problem, but I I figured if I'm going to do this thing, I better know what it's all about. So I signed up, went through both programs. I went to 12 Steps. And, uh, you know, and uh, I had a little different deal because uh, uh, when everybody else stands up and they start talking, they give their testimony, they got to start out by saying, well, I'm a recovering alcoholic. And I'd have to get up and say, well, I'm never, not a recovering alcoholic. I've never drunk in my life, but I'm really glad to be here. <laughs> but I wanted to find out. And you know what? They're great organizations, but let me tell you where they fall short. And this is not a criticism. This is just the truth. Because I'm for them. I think they help. But I think they help only go so far. You see, the Alcoholics Anonymous and the Narcotics Anonymous take the position that the rest of your life, uh, you're a recovering alcoholic. 
And you, the way you stay off the, stay off the wagon, or stay on the wagon, uh, uh, is the fact that you, all of your life, you, you, you go around convincing yourself you can't ever go around it, you can't ever be around it, because you're always going to be one. Now, I understand their method, but that's not Bible. The Bible says that when you got saved, you're a new creature in Christ Jesus. Old things are passed away. All things become new. The Bible says if you were a drunkard right here when you got saved, you're no longer a drunkard. As long as you have to go through life believing you are a drunkard, you always have the chance of falling back into it. But when you have been set free from alcohol and you got a better alternative, you know what happens with most people? Preachers stand up and they say you shouldn't drink. Or if you're an alcoholic or you're into drugs, that you, you ought to get rid of it. And you should. But you know what the problem is? The problem is preachers standing up and telling you to get rid of this in your life, but then the pastor's not giving you anything to replace what they want you to give up with. Now, the Bible does something that, that, that Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, or anybody else anonymous or, or can, can, can't do for you. I mean, the world will conform you, the world will inform you, the world can misinform you, the world can reform you, but God in his Bible and his Holy Spirit can only do one thing for you that nobody else can do. They transform you. When you get saved, you're no longer what you once were. You now have the power, the strength to overcome whatever's in your life. But up to that point, you have nothing. How hast thou helped them that is without power? The Bible says in Matthew chapter 18, verse 18, that, that, and Jesus made a statement, and many people look at this. He says, he said to his apostles, whatever you bind here on earth shall be bound on earth, and whatever you loose here shall be loosed on earth and up in heaven. Somebody said, what does that mean? <coughs> Do you and I have the power to bind somebody to their sins or loose somebody from their sins? Absolutely. You don't have the power yourself, but you have the power through this book. Let me tell you something. If you're lost here this morning and you go back there and sit down with me and I open up this book and you're bound to your sins, I'll bring you through the scriptures. I'll show you what the Bible says. I'll lead you to Christ. You pray the prayer. You believe what you believe. And you know what I've done through the power of this book? Not the power of me. The power of this book. I have loosed you from your sin through this book. That's your job and my job. That's why we saw last week in Romans chapter 14, verse 18, the job of this church and everybody in it. We've been given the ministry of reconciliation. Making things right that were wrong. That's the way it is. You have the power to bind or loose somebody's sins. Not because of who you are, but because of the Bible that God's given you. Because he wants you and I to help those who have no strength. And the only way I can help you is to take you to the book that gave me my strength. The Word of God. I think the greatest example of that anywhere in the Bible is in Acts chapter 8. The greatest model in the Bible is that old Ethiopian eunuch out there in the backside of the desert. Somebody gave him a copy of Isaiah 53. He's reading it. He doesn't know what in the world he's reading. And what does God do? God pulls out the main leading evangelist in Samaria, Philip, airlifts him over and drops him right down by that man's chariot and then for the express purpose of going up and explaining the scriptures to that guy, reconciling him to God and giving him the strength through the power of God in his life by winning him to Christ. That's your job and my job. It's a process of transformation. 
Bible says, be not conformed to this world. Oh, the world will conform you. It'll conform you to alcohol, conform you to drugs, conform you to this, conform you to that. Be not conformed to this world, but be you what? Transformed, how? By the renewing of your mind. That book. That book. You ever look at the second one? These things, I'm telling you, the only people who can answer these questions are saved people in the church age. Look at number two. How savest thou the armed and hath no strength? Now look at that thing. Only one person that can apply to, that's a Christian in the New Testament church. You see, he's an arm. He's part of the body. But he has no strength. He's a baby Christian. He's not matured yet. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 4 says we're one body. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 verse 13 says by one spirit we all baptized into one body. This person here is an arm. He's part of the body. You have a question of how we've helped young Christians grow. I mean, that's an incredible concept. John 15, 16 says, You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain. And whatsoever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. See that thing? Bring forth fruit and your fruit remain. Now in this church right here, you get saved. You can start out with the concept of discipleship. That gives you the basic fundamentals of how to learn to grow. You'll get a bit farther down the line. You can go through Bible basics. That starts to put the Bible together for you. You got some of you on Tuesday night. Not as many as when we started, but that's the way it goes. Uh, You can learn church history. We have a group in Bible Institute that want to learn on a third or fourth level, uh, equivalent to any Bible college or seminary on this planet. You have Sunday morning, Thursday night. God has widened our preaching ministry. We used to be down at the mission alone, and now we're going to Wichita, Warrensburg, where the women now have the women's shelter by which they're going to open up an incredible opportunity to minister. Uh, I've heard this morning that the plans are for the lady to, uh, that is going to, uh, is running the whole thing, it's going to come Thursday night. They've been taking their kids every morning, uh, every Sunday morning by van to a church in Blue Springs. I think she's going to bring them here next Sunday morning. That's how it starts. Then we have our Iron Man and our praying ministry, a team ministry. Over, right now, at this time in the church, over nine or ten ways, probably more than that, that you can get everything you need to grow spiritually. That's the job of this church, job of any church, to have the things available for you to do it. But you know as well as I do, I could have 65,000 Bibles, I could have 150,000 commentaries and tapes. And the bottom line is, if you don't have the desire to change your life and do what you need to do, we ain't going anywhere. We ain't going anywhere. It all comes back to attitude. You see, a young Christian is part of the body. He's the arm, but he has no strength. He needs to grow. You ever study arms in the Bible? David said in Psalms chapter 18, verse 34, He teaches my hands to war so that a bow of steel is broken by my arms. Hands and arms in the Bible are two of the greatest things you'll ever study. It's a picture of your spiritual growth. It's a picture because with your hands and your arms, guys are always walking around showing their muscles. They're in their arms. They're always showing off their, their arms and, and, and they, they're bodybuilders. They get the huge arms. Well, as a Christian, you ought, to, you ought to have some incredible biceps spiritually this morning. I think of the greatest example of that, and this is really what my life and my ministry is all about. 
It's the example of, of found back in the Old Testament. And this is how I look at it. I think it's very simple for me. You make them more complicated than they are, because many times you don't want to do what's right. But to me, it's real simple. Second Samuel, you don't have to turn back to it. Second Samuel chapter 23. You ever read Second Samuel chapter 23? You know what it's about? It's about David's mighty men of valor. We're going to preach that message in our throwback series. But just to look at it for a short time this morning, that's a great example of what, uh, what uh, this church ought to be. You see, you have the nation of Israel. That'll be a picture of everybody in Christianity. And then out of that group, David, a type of Christ, had men that were his mighty men of valor. They were men who, he had everybody, but they were men who had distinguished themselves, that they, David knew who they were, he knew what they were, and you, they had the power of God in a greater way in their life than the ordinary people. Now, most of God's people don't like that. We don't like the fact that there may be other people who have the power of God in their life more than we do. But it's a fact. It's the truth. David had all of the nation of Israel. But out of that, he had his mighty men of valor who were men of distinction, were men of renown. And we don't have time to get into it today. But we're going to go down in time and I'm going to show you the three or four qualities that they had that made them what they were to David. Just what we ought to be to God. But I want to talk to you about my favorite. And this is what I try to do. Now, the first thing you find in here, when you come down through here, all these men are Gentiles. I heard you preached at one time, and you, you told me that. And I said, well, I had never seen that. John Christensen said, these guys are all Gentiles. And I started coming down through there, and I thought, man, they are Gentile, every one of them. And that's cemented for me that this is a picture of, of what you and I are to be. God wants you to be today, whether you're male or female, his mighty man of valor. He wants you to be everything that these people were. But my favorite down here is in verse 9, and I'll just read it to you. And after him was Eleazar, the son of... Now, I can't... It's D-O-D-O. I don't know if it's Dodo or Doo-Doo. <laughs> but whatever it was, you better be careful how you say it when you say it to him. I had one Bible scholar at one time say it was Doo-Doo. Which I said back, I bet it was doo-doo, sure. <laughs> so after him was Eleazar, the son of doo-doo, dodo. Either one of them, not very flattering. Hey, dodo! Hey, doo-doo! The Ahoathite, one of the three mighty men with David when they defiled the Philistines that were gathered together to battle. And I love this. The, and the men of Israel were gone away. You know why they were gone away? Because they were afraid and they ran away. Here's David and three guys taking on all the Philistines. You know, that's just about true of any church. When it comes down to the real nitty-gritty and when a real gravel hits the real rubber hits the road and all of the things have to take place and all of the things that we always like, the nice, shiny, you know, day, clear, but when the clouds come in and issues have to be dealt with and all of the things, you know what you'll find? You'll find just what David found. Everybody else was gone, and here comes the onslaught of the Philistine type of the world. David's facing it with three guys. I can relate to that. I've been through these Old Testament passages, pal. He arose and smote the Philistines 
until his hand was weary and his hand clave under the sword and the Lord wrought a great victory that day and the people returned after him only to spoil. There was no fighting left. The Bible says that he had a sword in his hand. Picture the word of God. And he sliced those Philistines. He ripped them. They were greatly outnumbered. There was more, only three of them with David. And they fought. And they slashed. And they cut. And they, they did fought all day long. And he's, at the end of the battle, because he was in such tense battle, his muscles in his hand froze to the sword that when he was done, he couldn't even drop the sword. The sword, my friend, had become part of his arm. You know what I want for you? I want this sword to become part of your arm. That's my goal. The odds aren't really any very good because it only says three of you are going to do it. But that's, that's everything I do is to get you to the place where you understand. You have to grow spiritually and we have to give an account of how we help others grow spiritually. And his muscles cramped around that sword. And he could not drop the sword. And Hebrews chapter 4 says, The word of God is a sharp two-edged sword. How hast thou, how savest thou the arm that have no strength? Our job is to help young Christians grow. This isn't my job. It's the job of everybody in here. And your job is not to say things that hurt them or cause them to stumble. Romans chapter 14 your job is to edify them, help them, deal with them, bring them along. When you see they're struggling, help them with where they're struggling. Then the third one. How hast thou counseled him that hath no wisdom? You know, the need in America, every country has its needs. When the great earthquake hit Haiti, the need was incredibly great. People who lived in mud huds anyhow with no foundations, everything was gone. They needed clothes. They needed water. Some of those dear people down there went for three or four days without any water while we in Washington decided what we were going to do or how we were going to do it. And we were deciding what kind of plane to send while they're starving to death and they need something to drink, but that's the way it works. You know, I've been in Central America. I've been in Africa. I've been just about every place in the world at some point or the other. I've seen the need. Well, I stood, in the, I stood in the Ukraine and also in Romania and Hungary one time when, when the communists had just, when the wall had just come down. And I stood there and I watched out there at a grocery store at 3 o'clock in the morning where the people were lining up to get bread. And they were lined up a half a mile. And not half the people in that place got bread. When I finally walked into the store, the cupboards were bare, the shelves were bare. Only thing on those shelves were about four or five canned peach that looked like they'd been there since 1900. They have needs. America, every nation, every culture has its needs. America's needs aren't food. It didn't close. America is an insane asylum run by the inmates. America is an amalgamation of broken marriages, busted homes, broken lives, moms and dads, heartbroken, kids without families, kids that there's so many... So many, I've been into marriages and done marriages where there's been so many ex people in it, I, I just shut up and sit in the corner because I don't want to offend anybody. I don't know who's who. Man, they got four mothers and three fathers and, and 88 uncles and 97 grandkids, and I don't know who's who. I just say, sit wherever you want. 
Well, you got to see the mother first. And my, I, I did it one time, and I got the wrong mother. And the real mother was mad. But I fixed her. I left, and nobody married them. I'll show you. <laughs> America's a mess. You know what it reminds me of? Back in the 1950s, I don't remember the exact date, over in France, they always have the Le Mans race. I bought one of these tapes one time, you know, as morbid as I am, about great car crashes. You know, I mean, we all like it. We, we, you smug people, you want to say, can I borrow it? <laughs> you ever want a gross one? I got one called Buried in the Sand. Right, Bubba? Bubba's seen that one. Some of you have seen it. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> it's about what, what Saddam Sudan did to his people over there, and it's all on film. All the people got their throats cut, uh, cutting fingers off one at a time and making the people eat it. I mean, it's really bad stuff, so I won't go there with it. But, I mean, I mean, I mean you know, what? Bubba got it. He gave it to me. I wasn't my call. I mean, he, said, he said, you're really going to like this. I think one of the guys in the mission gave it to him for singing down there or whatever. <laughs> but I bought this tape on car crashes, and it was good. I mean, it was a lot of American stuff where, you know, the old, old Daytona back. I mean, back when they, you know, when the Indy Fab was 500, when they really had some splatter crashes, you know. And it was good. And it showed a lot of sprint car stuff where they're flipping in the air nine times. But the one that got my attention most of all took happened in the 1950s in France at the Le Mans race. And, what, and it, the whole thing was caught on film and it had sound to it. And I sat there and I watched that and I just shut the thing off. And I said to myself, you know what, <clears throat> that's all I need to see today <clears throat> because that's exactly, <clears throat> I got the impression, this is exactly what's, what it's like in America. What happened was this. You know, Le Mans, they race around the city. And they had a starting gate with all these, and they ran in these fast little Lotus alcohol-driven sprint cars. I mean, the little Lotus cars and, they, and those little Jaguars. And they all come out of the starting gate. And you know it's like any race you ever saw. Everybody wants to get around the first turn, so they all jam up in the first turn. That's where you have most of your wrecks. But this case here, they had all these cars were trying to get across to get the lead around that first turn. And what happened was, I mean, on tape, in color. The thing happened when one car flies over this and another car flies over that. One car explodes. Four or five cars go up into the air. Tires are falling off and they're soaked with that alcohol stuff on fire. And two or three of those cars go right over the short fence into the grandstand. And, I mean, I think there was like 50 people killed. People were burned. It was the tires took one guy's head off. It was absolutely the most incredible carnage you ever saw in your life. And when they started out, it was a big celebration. And when they started out, they were playing music over the loudspeaker. And when this catastrophe happened, it was so quick that they never shut the music off. And the music they were playing was, was circus music. It was that song I go, da 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 you know, real fast circus stuff. And what happened was those cars came around and scratched and exploded together, exploded. Went out, people were screaming, people were yelling, guys were crawling on fire, and people were screaming and wailing and yelling, and cars were rolling and everything, and over the whole thing was circus music. I saw that thing and I thought to myself, that's exactly what America is. America is a bunch of people dying, a bunch of people being killed, a bunch of people wailing and weeping, a bunch of people without any hope, without any strength of what they're going through in life, and it doesn't get any better, it just gets worse. They have busted families, busted marriages, busted everything, and yet all the time we're playing through the loudspeaker circus music like everything is really okay. Not okay. I've talked to you for several years now about once we take our last year of institute that we're going to start our classes on biblical counseling. 
you know, dealing with people's lives and the struggles that they have, because that's where America's need is. It's something that you don't want to rush into because of the, of the caliber of stuff that you've got to deal with. It's taken four, five, six years just to get many of you on a good, solid base where now you have the ability to move on to that level. And I hope to do that sometime next year. But you know, in reality, we talk about counsel, biblical counseling, and all of the things that go along with that. Counseling, dealing with people is not hard. We like to make it hard like there's something really special to it. But there's only two types of counsel in the Bible. Men and women have problems for two basic reasons. And it's so simple. I'd like to put on my Ph.D. hat up here and talk about uh, existentialism and, and, and manic depressive and, and, uh, and bipolar and, and talk about all the different things that people get up with and, and, uh, and, and get all that stuff going and, and talk about that. But in reality, it's real simple. People have problems for two reasons. If you're unsaved here this morning, your life is in a mess. Maybe not yet, but it will be. You know why? Because you're unfulfilled. And so what you're going to do, and you usually start this when you're 17, 18, or 19 years old, when you think you know more than your parents do, you start hanging out with a crowd that says, boy, if you really want to be a man or a woman, this is what you do. Your peer pressure starts smoking this, start drinking this, and you think that's going to fulfill you. They say, well, man, you ain't really lived till you did this, so you want to really live, so you try to do that. What happens is, in time, by the time you're 20, 30, 40, and 50, you realize that those things didn't fulfill anything, but now they've ruined your life. An unsaved man has problems because he's unfulfilled and he tries to fulfill it with everything in the world that will not fulfill it. So when you deal with an unsaved man, you deal with him on the basis of getting him saved and then getting the things out of his life. But the problem is this, the longer you go, the harder it is. I have the answer to just about everybody's problem in life. Not because I'm so smart, because I got the book that is so smart. But I want to tell you something right now. There's people right now in this world that I know that I'll never be able to help, even though I've got the answers. There's men and women that I can solve their problem just like that. Not because of me, but because of that book. But you know what? I'll never get to do it. They're going to die in their sins. They're never going to get it right because of the fact they have went so long and put it off so long and lied to themselves and deceived themselves and went through the process for so long. You're never going to touch them. Now you take a saved person. You know why a saved person has problems? No, I know the Bible says all that live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about you're saved and yet you're miserable this morning. I'm talking about you're saved and your, your life is upside down this morning. I'm talking about that you're claimed to be a Christian and you don't even know what it's all about. And you even wonder, get up in the morning and say, God, what is going on? Your life is a mess. You know why that is? I'll tell you why that is. It's because that once you got saved, God had a plan for you. And that plan God gave you was a plan for you to grow and be what he wants you to be. And you know what? Somewhere along the line, you decided not to be that he wanted you to be and be what you wanted to be. And the Bible tells you the Holy Spirit of God is living inside you. And once you get saved, you don't do what God says. It grieves him. Now, you got people 20, 30. Somebody said one time, well, I'm really depressed. And I said, well, why wouldn't you be? Look at your life. I mean, your life's been a disaster from, from, for the last 20 years. I'd be depressed. I'm depressed. You're even telling me what's going on in your life. Somebody says, well, I don't feel my, like myself. And I says, well, what do you feel like when you are yourself? <laughs> I don't even know. And that's the problem. Counseling is really simple. You're a saved, unsaved man or woman. You've got problems because you need to be saved. And so the Bible says, counsel you to be saved. If you're a saved person, then I counsel you to get right with God and do what you need to do. That's the deal. And our job, we're going to meet them all the time. 
You have right now, you are the greatest missionary to people in America with problems if you just will look around you. There isn't anybody in this room unless you're just not, that you don't work with people, that you don't associate with people who have issues in their life, who have problems in their family, and here you are standing here, sitting here with the Word of God in your hand. You should know the answers. You should be God's ambassador and God's counselor and witness to get them where they're at. I've had people that were only saved two or three weeks that didn't know squat about the Bible, but they saw somebody they worked with, they had a need, they said, look, I don't know how to help you, but I know who helped me and bring him into me and I deal with him. How hast thou counseled him? How hast thou counseled him that hath no wisdom? Then the fourth one. Oh, this is a rough one. How hast thou plentifully declared the thing as it is? Boy, I'll tell you what. If there's anyone that's going to kill most preachers at the judgment seat of Christ, it's going to be this one. I've been in this business for quite a while. I've seen and I know what influences preachers to preach and what they say and what they don't say. I know preachers that want to have a big crowd so they will never preach anything offensive to anybody because they don't want to ever offend anybody and because they think that building a church is a big crowd. My father and Lord told me one time when we looked at a church that was running 10,000 people and everybody was going, ooh, ah, wow, I wish we could have that. I looked at him and I said, what do you think? And he looks at me and he said, just because you got a crowd don't mean it's a church. Boy, that's an understatement. But pastors come to the place where they'll, they'll cut down their message. They'll know that somebody's got a particular issue and they, they won't preach on that issue. They'll get, they, they, they don't want to offend anybody. Because they know that if you, if you start preaching hard and start preaching sin and start preaching this and start preaching that, that uh, you won't get a big crowd. Big crowds never, never, never bothered me. I could care less if, you ha- if five of you show up. And I know that five would show up would be my own family. So I know that I, that's all I need. I, I, you know, if you want to come, that's fine. If you don't want to come, that's fine too. I, I don't get hung up on the crowd deal. I, just, I, I know, I told you before, I'm old school. I'm, I'm a dinosaur. I mean, I am. I, I'm, I'm out of my time. I'm out of my element. I don't really like it, but I'm stuck with it. But I don't really care. I've come to the point where when I first got into the ministry, there was two guys in my life. One of them believed the book. One of them didn't. One of them was a, my mentor and on fire for God. The other one was a, was a Bible college graduate that, that wanted his doctor degree and wanted all the things. And they were both in my life. And they both had equal influence in my life. And I remember when I got called into the ministry and the old man set me down and run me through the questions in the Bible, the other guy had some advice for me too. And he pulled me aside, took me out to lunch one day, and I was getting ready to move to Kansas City. This was back in 1976. And he pulled me aside and he said, can I talk with you for a moment? And I said, you sure can. And he said, I'd like to give you a little advice about going into the ministry. And I said, man, I need advice because I don't know anything about what I'm doing. And he said, well, let me help you something. And I said, I need all the help I can get. He said, look, he said, you're going out to Kansas City and you're going to get into the ministry. And he said, I need to tell you this. He says, you're not going to be successful preaching the way you preach. He says, no, I love you. And he said, you're a good kid. And I said, well, I love you and you're a good man. I mean, I'm good than a kid. I, I said, but, and he said, well, I'm just trying to help you. And I said, well, I appreciate that. He said, I'm going to tell you, you need to tone down the way you preach. Because he says, you're going to go out there, and he says, you're going to fall flat on your face because people, uh, you're not going to, uh, you're, this ministry is results driven. And he says, you are, very frankly, Bob, you are not going to get the results you've got to get by preaching the way you preach. And I looked at him, and I said, well, I, I really honestly appreciate that. But I said, you've got to know something about me. 
I said, first of all, I said, don't take this the wrong way. Take it in the spirit that's given. It's like I'm taking the spirit you gave it to me. But you better know something, pal. I'm not interested in results. I'm interested in the truth. And i just dumb enough to believe that if I just preach the truth, God will take care of the results. I think we make too many things that we do or don't say or don't preach because we want to manipulate the results. I don't care about the results. I've known pastors that get up and preach their hearts out and then they get depressed all day because nobody got saved. Never bothered me for a minute. If I preach a sermon today and I preach my lungs out and give it everything the best shot I got and nobody gets saved, I'm going to eat. Made my deal. You know why I feel that way? Because I got my priorities. My job's not to save you. My job's not to get you saved. Man, you walk around with that burden on your shoulders, you're going to die. My burden is not to get you saved. My burden is to preach the truth. It's God's spirit to get you saved, not mine. I'm not taking that responsibility. I mean, I'm just telling you. I mean, look, pal, I'm not standing someday before you. I'm going to stand someday before him. People are afraid if you preach hard, people will leave. Leave. I don't care. I mean, I, I thought that the, 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 the city made us put that exit in. I don't think so anymore. <laughs> you afraid that some guys won't preach hard because they're afraid their offerings will go down? I don't care. You know what? God always pays for what he orders. He sustains what he ordains. Money don't come in, we'll shut the doors. I don't care. I'll preach in my home. I'll take six or seven or eight of you and we'll just start with that. That doesn't bother me. I'm not, my income and my status is no importance to me. The truth is, the truth is, I'll tell you something. I tell people all the time, you know, people always ask me, well, you know, what's your, what's your, what's your take on giving in the, in the, in the Bible, in the church? Here's my take on it. 10%, uh, 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 you're, uh, given 10% of your pay with God's blessing on it will go a lot farther than a hundred percent of your pay without God's blessing on it. That's my take on it. You know how I put that into the ministry? It's just this simple. Preaching the truth with the hand of God on my ministry is a thousand percent better than a big crowd without the hand of God on my ministry. I don't care about a crowd. I care about the truth. And that's my own personal testimony. I mean, you may not like me. I like the way I am. No, I got issues and I got to fix on and I, I work on myself every day. Some things, some things I'm never going to work on, but I just, you know, I'm just like you. <laughs> but I'll tell one thing I like about me, and I, I don't like a lot about me. I think I'm too short. I think I'm balding. I don't even want to talk about my age. We're just going to pass that up. I know you know you're in trouble when you go to Walmart and you're really caught up with the tennis shoes with the Velcro straps on them. <laughs> But I understand why they do that. They're just easy to put on. No, I can't wear clogs. I think a man wears clogs. There's something wrong with him. Well, that's my own personal opinion. I mean, uh, I mean, there's probably nothing wrong with him. But I just, I, see, when I grew up, he wore combat boots. My mother wore combat boots. <laughs> The standard joke back in high school when he wanted to really put somebody down was says, ah, your mother wears combat boots. I said, oh, you've been over to the house? <laughs> there's some things I don't like about me. But there's one thing I do like about me. You don't talk to me five minutes, you don't know where I'm at. You don't have to hear one of my sermons and I say, I wonder what he thinks. People's first impression of me are very, very, very clean. 
They either love me or they hate me. Some people love to hate me, but the bottom line is, there's no middle ground with me. And I'll tell you why that is. I got, I got skewed when I was a young Christian. Skewed means I got, I got warped. My favorite passage in the Bible is 1 Kings chapter 22, verse 14. Now, I don't know if you know what 1 Kings chapter 22 is all about, but it's about uh, Jehoshaphat, who was the king of Judah, and Ahab and Jezebel, who was the king of Israel. And you had a prophet that showed up to them whose name was Micaiah. And they're talking back and forth there, and, uh, and uh, Jehoshaphat is out of fellowship with God. Abraham, uh, uh, of, uh, Ahab's out of fellowship with God. And God sent down Micaiah to really hold them accountable with the Word of God. And they don't like it. It's a perfect example of what you have in the ministry today where they want to do their own thing and they're looking for people to justify what they want to do over versus what the man of God is saying. You got to read it sometime. Here's how it goes. Jehoshaphat wants to do something and he, he wants God's hand in it. So he calls Ahab down and they meet together, have a little meeting. And he says, I want to do this. And, and, but I want to know if it's okay and God's okay with it. And Ahab says, yeah, no problem. I got 400 prophets. Let's bring them in and inquire of them. Now Ahab is the most wicked king that ever had. And these 400 prophets are the 400 prophets of Baal that have nothing to do with God. So they all get together and the 400 prophets, the 400 prophets tell Jehoshaphat exactly what he wants to hear. But Jehoshaphat is not completely stupid. He knows that Ahab's not right, and he's a little antsy because he knows if he gets out of the thing, God's going to whack him. So he says, is there any other prophet around here that can tell me? You know what, you know what, you know what old uh, uh, Ahab says? He says, yeah, there's one. His name is Micaiah. But I hate him! Just like that. He says, why? He says, because he prophesies no good thing toward me. So he says, go fetch him. Fetch is an old English word. Go get him. And so, what are you laughing at? So, he, so, he, so they, you know what they do? When they go down to get Micaiah, you know what they tell him? Micaiah, you're going to talk to Jehoshaphat. Now, will you please, oh, Je- Micaiah, will you please, will you pretty please, will you pretty, pretty please with sugar on it, will you not go in there and just shoot your mouth off and say all the things that are negative and say all the things that aren't pleasing? Will you please, please, you're going before the king. Will you please just tell him, please, pretty please, just tell him something that is good. You're such a negative preacher. <laughs> Oh, Micaiah looks right back at him in 1 Kings chapter 22, 14. He says this. What the Lord saith unto me, that will I speak. Yeah, I was just young. See this old Bible right here? This thing's got 200 sermons in it. This is not my study Bible. I got four preaching Bibles that I put my sermons in. This is the first one I ever had. See all those scars all over that thing? This thing's been through some wars. This thing was knocked out of my hand one time and somebody stamped on it when I was preaching outside of a Catholic church. I don't know what upset them. I thought my no hope in the Pope message was really good. This thing's been spit on. 
This thing's been kicked around. This thing's been in more countries. I mean, this thing's been around the world. And when I started preaching, I, I was a young guy. And I saw preachers caving in. I saw families in the church that wielded such power that they said, Oh, I can't lose that family. I won't preach hard. I won't do this. I never wanted to become that. I haven't become that, by the way. But many, many years ago, it's almost faded now. On the front of my Bible, I took it to a, 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 a bookstore. And they said, you want your name on it? And I said, no, I want a verse on it. And I had the verse on that thing, First Kings twenty two fourteen. 14. As the Lord liveth, what the Lord saith unto me, that will I speak. Every place I went. And there were times when I got in the pulpit that I was scared. There was times when I preached to the most hostile crowds that you could ever believe. There was times when I preached that people threw things at me. There were times when I had death threats. There were times when people made fun of me. There were times, and I was, I'm just human like anybody else. And I wanted, there's times, I'm going to be honest, there's times when I wanted to cave in. There was times that I said, maybe I better not say that. And then I looked down at that verse. And I say, if God told me to say it, that's what I'm going to do. It says, how hast thou plentifully declared the thing as it is? I grew up in a generation that said, tell it like it is, tell it like it is, tell it like it is. Then when you told it, nobody wanted to hear it. We live in a world that says, be real, be real, be real. You know, real is the word that reality comes from. You don't want to be real. And then the fifth one. Oh, it gets worse. To whom hast thou uttered words? They say we speak about 5,000 words on an average in a day. I wonder how much of that is centered around the Bible. Bible says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. You know what scares me about that question? Now, I'm a Bible believer. I can't speak for you. But I'm a Bible believer. I believe that God is supernatural. I believe that book is supernatural. And I believe that everything in this world is by God for some reason, even though we can't figure it out. And the thing that scares me about that question, to whom hast thou uttered words, is Albert Einstein's theory of relativity, which was based on the speed of sound and the speed of light. You know what Einstein said? He says, once a man says something, that it never stops going. He said, in reality, if we could get in the ship fast enough and travel fast enough and far enough, we could catch up and hear the very words of Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. I think it was Pennsylvania 65,000, but anyway. <clears throat> that always bothered me because I know how God operates. And I know how that book is. What if at the judgment seat of Christ, every word you and I ever spoke come rolling into that place and fits into a category. What if at the judgment seat of Christ, we talk 90% sports, 90% hunting, 90% fishing, 90% cars. What if our curse words outline more than the words we talked about God? What if our gossip and our sowing discord filled it up more? And what if we got into our prayer time? It was zero. And our witnesses, and it was zero. And our Bible was written, it was zero. You know what bothered me about money? And I know money's a necessary evil. But once I saw that thing about words, and what, I mean, you don't believe that God's going to just sit there and let you tell you your side of the story. He's going to let that thing just flow in there. And I can very early see every word coming into that thing. If Einstein was right, by the time we're standing there, I open my mouth, everything I ever said just come walking right through there. And God takes account of it. You know what bothered me about money? This is stupid, but it bothers me. 
Every piece of money I've ever seen in my life has somebody's head on it. Inscription. Back in the early 300s, it was Constantine. In our own money monetary system, it, it's, uh, you know, Ben Franklin, George Washington, Abraham Lincoln. I don't know of a country on this planet that its money does not have somebody's inscription or somebody's face on that money. What if? What if at the judgment seat of Christ, every dime that God ever gave you to support your ministry, to support the work of God, what if every dollar, every dime that God ever gave you all of your life comes rolling down at the feet of Jesus and that head on that money opens up and says what it was spent for? There'll be some of God's people, bless their heart, that spent more money in their lawns than they did winning people to Christ. Wouldn't it be a terrible thing to get to the judgment seat of Christ and realize in your whole life you spent more money on dog food than you did the house of God? I'm telling you. I'm telling you. This is a terrible message. Somebody says, well, Bob, I think you're stretching it. Amen, brother. I hope I stretch it so far it breaks. My God, what a thought. No wonder we're told the gold by gold tried in the fire. You know, Solomon was the greatest, wisest man that ever lived. And we talked about how that he was seven years in building the temple. But you know where Solomon's downfall came in? In the same passage that says he took seven years to build God's house, but he took 13 years to build his own. It comes to the point where we start putting what we have more into the things that we do than we think that God does. That's simple. Now, you can argue it and justify it all you want. I mean, there's people in this church right here don't give a dime to this church. You freeload off everything we do. I don't care. I told you before, we can't pay the bills. We'll shut the door. I don't care. doesn't bother me. I've had one thing God given me the ability to do all my life, and that is to find a job to be able to make money. I mean, I, I, I was looking for a job when I found this one. But I, so I don't care. It ain't my deal. I don't really care one way or the other. I mean, this is God's thing. If you've got the, you got the uh, lack of courage to come here and not support it, that's your deal, not mine. But I'm just telling you this. Every question in that Bible, somebody has to answer. What if at the judgment seat of Christ, every dime God ever gave you, everything, what if it comes down in your whole lifetime, you spent more money on yourself, doing your thing, doing what you wanted to do, than you did on what God wanted you to do? I'm telling you. Scares me to death. Scares me to death. Scares me to death. Then lastly, whose spirit came from thee? You know, there's four spirits on this earth, and man can have three of them. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 21, talked about the animal, a spirit, an animal having a spirit. Then we have God's spirit, man's spirit, and an unclean spirit. And man can have one of those three. He can have the power of God in his life, or he'll have the power of the flesh in his life, or he'll have the power of the devil in his life. Do you ever notice that these six questions, some of these are asked a certain way? One of them is asked, how hast thou helped him? Another one's asked, how savest thou the arm? The other one is, how hast thou counseled him? The other one is, how hast thou plainly declared? You see, the how deals with how you did it, by God's spirit or your human spirit. If you've noticed yet, by the time I've come through this, I believe this thing so much, and I may tell you I, don't, I hope it's not right, but I know it is right. I may use that in my message and my approach to kind of give a little break out of it, but I have no doubt in my mind these questions aren't going to show up there. I am so sure of it. If you're paying attention one way or the other, and you've been around here any short period of time, you know what? I built my whole ministry around those six questions. 
I built my whole ministry around those six questions. That's how sure I am. <clears throat> Last week I showed you in Exodus chapter 27, the fire off the brazen altar kindled at Calvary. And that's what you and I need to do. Everything that we do need to be kindled off the fire what God did for us. I was talking to Tara yesterday at kid's birthday party. <clears throat> and I don't mean to put anybody on the spot. But I want to give you guys a verse. I think this is important. Tara and I were talking about, <clears throat> about them going down to Wichita. And I was talking about how that, uh, you know, it was a, how, what a great time they're having down there. And she said something to me. We had talked about all the great things that God's doing in the ministry of the church here and, and people are getting involved and people being saved and all the things that go along with it. <clears throat> and then she said something to me. And Jerry and Joe, this is what she said. Bubba's an alcoholic. No. I got to pick on Bubba because I love him so much. Here's what she said, guys. She said, you know what? Excuse me. She said, you know what? We couldn't do what we do down there if it wasn't for my mom and dad who were taking care of the kids to give us the freedom to go. Now, I want to tell you something. I want to give you something. I want to give you something. I want to give every one of you something because I know many of you parents do that with your kids. I know many of you do. I want to give you a verse because I think sometimes <clears throat> when you don't get to go that you feel like you're left out. But I want to give you something. I want to give you a verse today <clears throat> that you earned and you deserve. First <clears throat> Samuel chapter 30, verse 24. The judgment sheet of Christ is about attitude. Now, I'm going to show you how that Bubba and Tara can go down there, Steve and Nikki can go where they were, Danny and Jamie, whoever, <clears throat> and when you guys take care of the home fires so they can go minister, let me show you what the Bible says. Judgment sheet of Christ, it's attitude. <clears throat> look at this thing. This is your verse for today, mom and dad, and every other mom and dad in here that does the same thing, and there's a, there's a lot of you. I didn't mean to single them out, but if I gave you all the name, we'd be here till midnight. First Samuel chapter 30, verse 24. What a great verse. But as his part is that goeth down to the battle, so shall his part be that tarrieth by the stuff. They shall part alike. Whatever rewards they got by going down with the right attitude of heart and doing what they're doing, you get the same rewards for watching those kids and providing the way for them to go. God is fair. God is fair. Mom and dad see your kids getting involved in the Word of God and loving the Bible and says, I want to do everything to help them. They get an opportunity to preach. Mom and dad say, we'll keep the kids. We'll watch the kids. Or somebody else in his church saying, I'll watch your kids while you go. You know what? They go down there with every words they get. You part alike. One went to the battle. One stayed by the stuff. But the verse says you both part alike. That's God. That's God. God evens it out. God evens it out. Today, you and I are operating by one of three spirits. The power of God, power of the flesh, and power of the devil. And you know what? When you look at this, and I think this is the worst part. <clears throat> when I started to study this, 
I, I just didn't take it halfway. I, I couldn't. I finally realized that my very validity as a pastor, as a Christian, as a man of God, was hanging on how I viewed the judgment seat of Christ and learning everything I could about it. Now, you may not want to. That's between you and God. I told you before, I believe these things so desperately, I built my whole ministry around them according to those questions to give you everything that you need. Everything those six questions are, if you stop and think about it and look through this church, you will see it's built around these six things because I believe it. But now here's the killer. Do you know who answers those questions when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ? It won't be you or me. I have one last story in the Bible, and then I'm done. Found in Genesis chapter 24. Now, we use this as a great study, and many of you ladies have done this, and I've done it. And I'm not sure I've ever taught it this way, but I always teach it as the fact that it's a picture of how you find a mate. You want a husband, you want a, you want a wife, this is the process you go through. Eight or 19 thing, 18 or 19 things in here. But it's more than that. Let me tell you what we have here in Genesis chapter 24. You don't have to turn to it, just listen to me. If you have questions about it, we'll clear it up on Thursday night. <clears throat> the whole theme of this chapter is Abraham wanting getting a bride for his son Isaac. The whole chapter deals with a bride for Isaac. Now here's what we know. Abraham's a type of God the Father. Isaac is a type of Christ. He wants a bride, so he goes out and he looks for a bride. And the bride that he found is Rebekah, who's a Gentile, by the way. Abraham did not go himself. He sent the faithful servant who was the steward over all of his house. And that would be Eleazar. You know, it always struck me that in the particular chapter there, it doesn't say Eleazar's name. You've got to go back to Genesis chapter 15. I think it's in verse 2 where it tells you who this servant is. His name is Eleazar. And here's what you got. And if you have not heard anything else I've said, put it all down. Don't worry about it. Get the tape later. Listen to what I'm about to say. Abraham is a type of God the Father. Isaac is a type of Christ. He wants a bride for his son, and it's a Gentile bride. Rebecca, picture of you and me, the church. But how does he get that bride? He sends out his eldest servant, Eleazar, type of the Holy Spirit of God. You know why he's not mentioned in this passage as Eleazar? You've got to go back and find it someplace else. I'll tell you why. Because the Holy Spirit of God seeks no credit for himself. He's the great unknown part of the Trinity, so his name's not found. You know what you got? You got Eleazar going out among all of the nations to find one bride, a picture of you and me. And when you follow that story, he finds this woman. He finds this woman. And when he finds this woman, he's everything that he, he, he wants. He sees her qualities, much like God saw yours. If you go on down through that passage, you'll find that he asks her. He tells her about Isaac. And he asked her, will you go with me? And you know what? And he even asked her parents, which was proper, which was proper in the Old Testament. You just didn't say, hey, sweetie, will you come with me? They had to go through the family. So he asked the family, can I take her to be the wife of my, of my master? And you know what they said? They said, we can't say, ask her for yourself. 
You know why? Because when you come to Jesus Christ, you have to make the decision yourself. So you find that she says the most three, the greatest words in the Bible that we all said when we were faced with Jesus Christ in the decision of going with him. You know what she says? I will go with this man. And at that point, it's a picture of you and me getting saved. Now they start a journey. The journey is to go meet Isaac. The day you got saved, ladies and gentlemen, you started a journey to meet your Isaac. And the Bible says down through there that the whole time they're journeying, you know what she's saying? She's asking Eleazar, what's he like? What's he look like? I'm so excited. What does he think about this? What does he think about that? The whole trip going to meet Isaac, she's asking Eleazar what Isaac, the man she's going to be married to, is all alike, all about. Right now, you're on your journey. Your chance is to find out everything you can about your Isaac. Bubba sings the song. Oh, get ready, the evening shadows fall. Can't you hear Eliezer call? There's going to be a wedding, my joy will sue. In the evening when the camel train comes in. All of that journey to meet her Isaac. She's saying, what about him? Right now, on your journey to meet him, you asked me on Thursday night. I teach you on Sunday morning. In discipleship, in our one-on-ones, you have the chance to say, what about him? What about my Jesus? What about heaven? What about this in the Bible? What about that in the Bible? This is your time to ask the question. Now watch. Verse 66 just happened to match up to the last book in your Bible when it all folds up. Verse 66, the end of the Bible. They see Isaac coming toward them. And they meet. And the Bible clearly tells you that when they finally meet, it's Eleazar, the Holy Spirit of God, who tells the son, Isaac, all where they've been and all what they've done. You ain't going to have to say a word. You know who's going to answer those six questions? The one you've been sharing a ride with and today you got saved. The one that has heard everything that you and I have said. The one who has experienced everything that you and I have experienced. The one that has read every motive that you and I ever had in anything that we did. Oh, I would like to get up and tell my side of the story, but my side would be skewered. So God chose someone that's going to stand there that has been with me since the day I got saved and knows everything there is to know about me, good, bad, and ugly. And when I stand there and I'm judged not as a sinner, not as a son, but as a servant, it'll be my Eleazar who right now in this life between when I got saved and when I meet my Isaac, I've had every opportunity and so have you to find out everything about him that you might be prepared when you meet the bridegroom. When I stand there, I'm not going to say a word. These six questions are going to be asked and the Holy Spirit of God is going to answer them. What a terrible thing. What a terrible concept. Well, ladies and gentlemen, there it is. Now you may understand why it is the most important teaching and doctrine in the Bible 
to you and me. It is something that is absolutely paramount. It is the hardest thing to keep focused on. Everything in your life, every person you hang out with that's not right with God will try to pull your focus off, whether they're saved or they're lost. Everything you do will go against the grain of staying focused, of asking yourself the motive behind what you're doing. But the thing that you have to discipline yourself in in your own life is to understand that in that day, it won't be you get up and telling your goofy little story like we tell it now. It'll be the one that was inside of you from the bone you got saved that reads you like a book that tells the God what went on. Every head bowed and every eye closed.